Heading toward the 2024 election, Michigan is returning to the national spotlight. Representative Rashida Tlaib has recently attracted attention from lobbyists for Israel for her vocal support of Palestinian rights and her calls for a ceasefire in Gaza. What kind of chance might a well-funded challenger have of unseating her? On the other side of the aisle, a divided Michigan GOP may be headed into a very big election year, with its party chair, Christina Caramo, at the vertex of an ongoing intra-party conflict. What would it mean to enter 2024 without clear leadership at the top of the state's Republican organization? Today, we're getting into both these stories for a Michigan Politics Digest. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Simon Schuster is senior political reporter at MLive, and he's going to help us decode what's going on right now. Hey, Simon, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. So the last few years have brought some changes to the 12th district because of the independent redistricting process that Michigan went through. Can we just review who's in the 12th these days, some of the communities that are a part of it? Sure. So the, the 12th district is currently held by Rashida Tlaib, and she's representing uh, really kind of a broad range of communities. This is a district that stretches down from Dearborn and Inkster all the way up to Beverly Hills and Southfield. So this is something that kind of goes through a large cross-section of Metro Detroit. Is there anything overall that can be said about, you know, sort of how the, the composition of the 12th changed during redistricting? Yeah, so uh, Rashid Tlaib had previously represented the 13th, which was more heavily involved in Detroit, and she had represented Southwest Detroit in the state legislature previously. And so this is a sort of a reorganization. It's become more heavily Arab American. It's gone through some uh, interesting working class communities, but then also uh, moved upwards towards some more, uh, say, middle to upper middle class communities when you count, you know, Southfield and uh, Beverly Hills. Much has been made of Rashida Tlaib's identity in Congress. She's the first Palestinian-American woman to serve in the House. And she's obviously been under a lot of scrutiny uh, in how she has reacted to the ongoing crisis between Gaza and Israel. This is not a new issue for her, but it's also not the only thing that she's worked on in Congress. How would you describe Rashida Tlaib's profile as a lawmaker, her, her priorities and the kind of record she has on constituent service? Um, I think that there's sort of a split screen that happens with Rashida Tlaib and her tenure in Congress. If you're a Fox News viewer, uh, you're going to know her most prominently as a member of the so-called squad and, uh, you know, her progressive bona fides. But really, in, in Congress, she has been a progressive advocate. She's a member of the Progressive Caucus. She is one of the most uh, progressive members of Congress. But at the same time, uh, you know, she has a lot of love within her district as someone who's really advocating for representatives, has always been available for uh, constituents when they, when they reach out to her office. She's someone who's been a longtime community advocate and a working class advocate. This is something that's garnered a lot of love for her in her district. But at the same time, when you look at the Center for uh, Effective Lawmaking, they have orders and ranks of legislative effectiveness. Uh, She's not high on that list. She's 189th out of 232 in the last Congress where Democrats held a majority. So because she's so outspoken and so um, brazenly progressive, when there's slim majorities in Congress, as we see now, she's often not engaged in the sort of coalition building that's necessary to pass a lot of legislation. What do we know about possible challenges to Rashida Tlaib in 2024, or I guess I should say interest in funding potential challenges to Rashida Tlaib in that position? 
Right. So the conflict uh, in, in is between Israel and Hamas has certainly become the predominant uh, factor in this race, especially among many Arab Americans who become uh, disaffected by the and discontented with the Democratic Party and their response and steadfast support of Israel in this uh conflict. And Rashida Tlaib has been outspoken in her advocacy for the Palestinian people and what she sees as, uh, you know, an overzealous response from Israel and uh, essentially what she views as human rights violations in their response. And as a result, you know, we have uh, the uh, American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, a special interest group devoted to, uh, you know, promoting steadfast relations with Israel. It's one of the most influential foreign policy groups in uh, Washington. And their sort of position is that either you need to have unqualified support of Israel and its issues, or, you know, you're on their naughty list. And so earlier in November, a story emerged that said there had been a call with uh, Senate candidate Hill Harper, and that he had been solicited, essentially, by a wealthy donor to drop out of the Senate race, which he's currently engaged in a campaign for, and then run in the 12th district against Rashida Tlaib in a primary. And allegedly, according to Politico, that if he would do this, uh, they could contribute $10 million in bundled donations directly to his campaign and an additional $10 million in independent spending. Wow. It's important to note that APAC has steadfastly denied this allegation. Hmm. And there is another candidate who has made uh, similar claims that he was also offered uh, a lot of money if he was willing to step forward and challenge Rashida Tlaib in the primary. Do we know how Tlaib's fundraising is going so far herself? I mean, does she sound like she's ready for a challenging year in 2024? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously it's important to note that one, she's very popular within her district and that two, uh, all politics is national in this day and age, especially with someone who has the national profile that Rashida Tlaib has, either villainized in conservative circles or lionized among progressives. So fundraising is going very well for her. And at the same time, I think that really a barrier to her receiving a legitimate challenge from the Democratic side in a primary is that few people have the amount of cachet that she has within her community. Yeah. Is there anything that you think we learned from the 2022 Democratic primary? Janice Winfrey, who was a reasonably well-known name in Metro Detroit politics, tried to go at Rashida Tlaib and and she lost. What do you think that that race tells us about Rashida Tlaib's vulnerability or lack thereof? Yeah, essentially, you know, uh, APAC as a group has a national focus. They're not necessarily on the ground and organizing with individuals, but they can bring a lot of money to bear in these races. And so this was a, another instance where it, there was talk of APAC's influence and the idea that they had been underwriting her campaign. They had given her certainly a lot in bundled contributions. But at the end of the day, it wasn't very effective because she didn't have that sort of, uh, you know, years of experience um, in these communities essentially building up this rapport. I think at the same time, when you look at other races, like the primary between Andy Levin and Haley Stevens, this was a, a, an incumbent on incumbent primary where both of these candidates had are well known. And uh, there's not a ton of daylight between them in terms of policy positions. But APEC was willing to bring to bear millions of dollars in favor of Haley Stevens because of her steadfast support in Israel. Andy Levin even, you know, articulated that he was a big supporter of Israel. But at the same time, he had criticized the administration of Benjamin Netanyahu, and that was enough to earn the ire of APAC. And so that was a, a different instance where APAC's influence made a decisive difference. 
We need to take a break. When we come back, we're headed across the aisle to find out what's happening within the Michigan GOP. Be right back. Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Support for the Stateside Podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. Simon, while we've got you, I wanted to ask about what's going on with Michigan's Republican Party. There were some stories over the weekend, uh, first reported, I believe, by Bridge Michigan, that a group of state Republican Party committee members led an alternate meeting. There was a state party committee meeting that was happening, and these members broke off because they wanted to talk about ousting party chair Christina Caramo. Why has Caramo lost the trust of some of her own party's committee members? Yeah, you know, I think that this is something that has been a long time coming. I've been closely following the going on in the Michigan Republican Party for months. And this is a part of long simmering dissatisfaction with Karamo's leadership. Uh, the party has had meager fundraising and really perpetual infighting. And a lot of these critics, a lot of these uh, malcontents within the party state committee feel that you know, she has sort of taken a my way or the highway approach and she's puritanical. And in late November, there was uh, sort of a breaking point reached where uh, Karamo disbanded a, a committee that she herself had created, the Conflict Resolution Committee, and then replaced the head of the policy committee who had been a prominent critic of her. This is at following her own replacement of the budget committee when he had criticized the lack of, uh, perceived lack of transparency from this administration. And so this is something that has been a long time in the making, but What's really important here is that a majority of the state committee attended this alternative meeting and that Karamo's virtual meeting failed to reach a quorum. This is sort of almost a watershed moment where momentum is shifting towards the critics and away from people who had long been steadfastly loyal towards Karamo. Do you have any thoughts on who might be positioned to move the party into its next phase as a leader? I mean, the guy who was Christina Karamo's chief rival when she became party chair, Matt DiPerno is facing criminal charges for voter fraud during the 2020 election right now. Do you see a likely contender for the state party chair? You know, I think that's a very good question and something that hasn't really been resolved yet. If Krama was would be successfully ousted and they're convening a special meeting December 27th, where this is hopefully very much on the agenda. That's what, so that's an, something they're hoping to accomplish is putting this to a vote. Melinda Pago, the co-chair, who's really done a lot to stay out of the media spotlight and hasn't really had a, a high profile, would assume a, sort of a role as interim chair until there's a vote held for another chair. But I think that, you know, this is going to create something of a vacuum if she is successfully ousted. And this is something where a lot of the people who are dissatisfied with her feel that she hasn't really committed to. Uh, when I spoke with her, she talked about creating one big, beautiful quilt of all these different factions within the Republican Party. But she also said in the sentence after, is people aren't on board with that, good riddance. And uh, I don't think there is somebody yet who has really stood out as someone who can 
take a part of this party that has been riven with infighting and factionalism and bring these coalitions together. I think right now what's what folks are united with, people that are uh, you know, formerly part of the so-called establishment, people who are grassroots activists, is in their opposition to how Karamo has run the party. And I don't necessarily know and think we can say with any certainty that their unity extends far beyond that right now. So sort of we have, we have an idea of what their next step might be, but as to the day after that, um, I think it really remains up in the air. Well, does this mean that the Michigan GOP is not going to be a force in the 2024 election cycle? The the one place where I think that this could really hurt Republicans is that the state Republican parties become a vehicle for this huge loophole in campaign finance where they can spend unlimited amounts of money on quote unquote volunteer mail supporting presidential candidates. The national level, there are spending caps on this, but they can use, it's sort of like um, a shell game and shuffle money around and then get a joint fundraising committee money from like Trump's campaign, for instance, and spend that money in unlimited amounts on mailers. And without a sort of competent uh, state Republican Party, I don't think the national folks would have trust uh, this party with that money. The other thing that I think is worth noting here is that state party administrative accounts, these are uh, sort of, I don't, maybe slush funds might be an extreme term, but I think it's a somewhat fair characterization, um, is the largest source of dark money in state legislative elections. People and corporations can donate unlimited amounts without disclosure to these, and they are used to run attack ads in legislative races. Uh, We've seen from leaked budget documents from the state party that there's not much money in this administrative account right now. Uh, These are accounts that spend on the order of millions of dollars in our state legislative races, if not more. And so if they don't have those funds, despite these razor-thin margins in the Michigan House in the hopes that Republicans can sort of regain this majority in 2024. Without that extra sort of boost of money, it makes that goal for them all that much harder to achieve. That's the Stateside Podcast for today. I'm April Baer. You can find full Stateside episodes from more Michigan stories at michiganradio.org. Today's pod was produced by Rachel Ishikawa. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Ronia Kabansag, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our interns are Lauren Neong and Olivia Moradian. Our executive producer is Laura Weber-Davis. Music for the pod comes from Blue Dot Sessions and from Audio Network. Thanks for listening. We'll catch up with you again at this time tomorrow. Till then, we'll see you later. Hi, I'm Rebecca Williams. I'm Lester Graham. We've been working on a big project about Great Lakes birds called the Bird Connection. It will look at ducks and trumpeter swans. Egrets and herons. And piping plovers. Yes! We'll discuss what we've discovered at a Michigan Public Issues and Ale event. Including how some problems for birds are problems for people. It's at Arbor Brewing Company in Ypsilanti the evening of May 21st at 7. You can register at michiganpublic.org.